And it's Jameson Fink with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Wine Without Worry is brought to you by Wente Vineyards, America's oldest family-owned winery and California's first family of Chardonnay. You can visit them online at wentevineyards.com. Today we're going to take a little trip to Las Vegas. I'm going to take you there uh, via an audio adventure. Um, Las Vegas is a place where uh, I've been for, uh, surprisingly, um, bachelor parties mostly. And I think I even went there once for an IT conference uh, when I worked for a uh, benefits consulting firm in um, uh, outside of Chicago. So I've gone there for uh, the usual reasons and the unusual reasons. But the dining scene there is really fascinates me just because of the quality of chefs. Uh, the size and scale of restaurants, the amount of wine there is is pretty uh, uh, mind-blowing. So uh, it's really great to get to talk to an insider uh, in Las Vegas. It's Cole Sisson. He's the head sommelier at Michael Mina at the Bellagio. And uh, I'm always curious about speaking with sommeliers about their job, but then I'm even more curious about what's it like in Las Vegas. And I've known Cole uh, since uh, his Seattle days. So, um, Cole, thanks for being on the show. My first question is, um, what was it like that first night when you stepped onto the floor in a Las Vegas restaurant? Was it, uh, was it like restaurant culture shock or were you, uh, were you prepared for anything there as opposed to your Seattle experience? First night in Vegas was, uh, I think, daunting uh, for many levels, both being on the Strip, being in a property like the Bellagio, being at a Michelin-starred restaurant like Michael Mina, and just not really knowing what to expect. Um, world-class cuisine, I mean, who's who. But after a few minutes, as a psalm on the floor, you quickly remember it's, it's, it's one, two, three. You're picking out wines, you're serving them, you're talking to guests. I think you fall right back kind of into the, into the flow. I got to uh, interview you for Grape Collective, and you can find that at grapecollective.com. But one of the things I was interested about um, coming from uh, Seattle is what's the wine scene like in Las Vegas? I mean, what are what are people into there? I guess dining at at Michael Mina, and then and then also uh, what are people into? You know, um, uh, outside of outside of your work, what do you what are you seeing people drink a lot of? What's what's popular in Vegas? You know, Vegas is such an interesting market because. It's really a melting pot, and you have such an interesting you know, cross-section from all over the country and all over the world. So unlike some other restaurants in, in very local markets, you have these individuals. Some come from New York, Paris, Tokyo, the top restaurants in the entire world, and others come from you know small towns in the Midwest or you know, small areas where they've never actually been to one of these kind of famed restaurants. So in terms of drinking all over the board, I mean, there's definitely a preponderance of, of California wines. Um, we're so close to California, L.A., San Francisco, but a ton of uh, Napa, Sonoma, Central Coast. Uh, we've been pushing a lot more French wines, trying to work on some Burgundy and Bordeaux and, you know, some Spanish wines. And it's all over the board. I mean, if everybody just had their druthers, I think that California would be the, the, the top of the heap. But it's a very eclectic scene for drinking habits. Well, what's uh, <clears throat> what are some of the more eclectic offerings that you have at the uh, restaurant that, that that you like to kind of geek out on and, and try and get people excited about? I've been playing around a lot with Austrian Austrian Riesling, you know, really working that kind of Riesling and Gruner, just brought in a little, you know, Pinot Pinot Gris from from Heidi Schrock in, in Austria, and so some interesting kind of esoteric varietals. Um, also playing around Spanish, you know, in this in this room. Something like Albarino is, is is very unusual for a lot of people. So I mean, you definitely have that spectrum. So Albarino, what is it? Where is it from? 
a grape that in Seattle we might have served, you know, seen it in almost every restaurant, but here it's it's new and exciting. Um, definitely working with some some Spanish varietals, you know, we throw on throw on Tempranillo and Granacha, and, um, a little bit from the southwest of France, but a lot of those kind of real wacky, geeky wines are definitely hand sauce. I slip a few on the tasting menu from time to time, but we're, we're we're getting there. We're getting there. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> I think it's also interesting you mentioned you know your your clientele or just people in Vegas in general, not just at the um, Michael Mina restaurant, but you've got people uh, coming from all over the world, people who uh, are into fine dining. And but like you also mentioned that kind of like maybe that Midwestern couple <clears throat> coming out to Las Vegas for the first time. It's their first experience at a restaurant like that. Um, how do you make people feel comfortable at the table when they haven't experienced uh, ordering from a sommelier or, or choosing wine in that manner? I think with every interaction, as you walk up to a table, as you really get a read, you know, you'll, you'll figure out pretty quickly the way that someone's looking at the wine list or the initial initial questions, um, how, how familiar they are in this environment. And so you can really tailor your approach to that and really kind of see if this is, you know, kind of a, a first time or if somebody just came from, you know, Robuchon. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Someone will start dropping names quickly and you realize, okay, 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 here we go. You know, we can go straight to a certain part of the list. But, you know, a lot of people will ask for assistance and, and there we go. And it can really, really be disarming for a lot of people in a restaurant like this to just put on the real, just, hey, how's it going? Be a little more casual in that environment because everyone's expecting a very, not a hoity-toity, but it's, it's, a, it's a very nice restaurant in Las Vegas. You know, so it becomes very much a, you know, good evening, where are you visiting from? And that, and that quickly drops a lot of people down and, oh, I can name a place and hard to read some people in Vegas sometimes. It's it's more challenging than I anticipated. Well, yeah, well, I would hope so. I mean, these are people trying to um, uh, make money by not being read at, like, the gaming tables. They're trying to, like, they're bringing that. You can't, maybe they can't just turn it on and off like a switch. You know, you got to bring that poker face to the sommelier, too. I've been I've been really wrong a couple times. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no way. And then, you know, I had a table order a bottle of, you know, Chevalier Montrachet or something, you know. I'll have a bottle of this, and it's, you know, $4,000, and I was going up, you know, and, and, and it, it's very interesting. It's you're, very going interesting. For the, you're going for the Albarino. It's interesting. It's, there's a lot of disposable income in Las Vegas. Yeah. So that's, that's something that's... So I took a look at the, the menu, and um, a couple of things stood out to me. First, um, that you can start with, like, a, a shellfish platter and a caviar tasting. Um, what are some of the... Uh, and those are both things I love, and, and together and separate, but what are... Um, what are some of the best wines to have with, like, a, a shellfish platter, for example? You know, it depends. Uh, Chablis is always kind of an easy go-to. Something on the drier side with high acid I think works really well. A lot of people are hesitant to go with any kind of, of Riesling. So, I mean, champagne is obviously, a, you know, straightforward. Um, but I, I do push a lot of uh, Poufoumé and uh, Chablis and, and just kind of high minerality, high acid you know, refreshing, clean white wines when we serve shellfish platters. Why is there so much um, resistance to Riesling still? I mean, it's, you know, every wine writer, sommelier, wine geek is is nuts for Riesling, you know, uh, absolutely nuts for it. Um, But it still seems like as much as we love it, um, it's a challenge to get uh, the rest of the the world to love it as, as much as we do. What what are the obstacles uh, in the way of of riesling not being something that people just realize is you know an incredibly food friendly wine, uh, delicious, uh, a great variety, uh, and as far as you know, bang for the buck, you know, it's like one of the world's greatest values too. 
I think it's still a stylistic thing and not really understanding, you know, what wrestling is in a certain environment. I think that a lot of, you know, people, the idea of, okay, Alsatian wrestling versus, you know, German wrestling, Mosel versus Rheingallen. There's so many different styles. And a lot of people are accustomed to drinking wines domestically, you know, wrestling from Washington and California and small wineries and large wineries. And everybody has this different idea of kind of what wrestling is. And I don't think they quite understand, a lot of people don't at least, um, how valuable it can be with a plate of food. But you also have an old kind of adage where people think that they don't like sweet wines, you know, and you give them a wine with a little bit of residual sugar and they say, oh, that's delicious. But there's still this kind of pent-up, you know, angst when it comes to Riesling. And I I mean, people in New York, you know, with the summer of Riesling and all over the country, you have the songs championing it. But... It's, we still have a long ways to go. So on tasting menus, whenever there's a, a course that requires or goes well with the reasoning, I'll stick it on. You know, people will love it. But I think people still don't understand. It's hard sometimes, right? Cabinets, Bailey's, you look at all the different styles and then what direction you go, and I get confused sometimes. So I definitely yeah. understand. I get confused by uh, Alsatian Rieslings. I think a lot of times they're Rieslings from Alsace. Uh, you know, sometimes they have like the code on the back, but uh, sometimes you don't know. Um, sometimes they're really rich and kind of, uh, you know, a heavier style Riesling and with some sweetness. And sometimes they're they're really dry. And yeah, like you said, with the German wine label system, you know, that's uh, that's a world unto itself. I just think, uh, and then there's Austrian Rieslings, which are dry. And then domestic Rieslings, you know, they can be anything from dry to um you know, super sweet dessert wines. So I think it's hard to for people to know without like sort of like a cheat sheet or a sommelier, like what level of sweetness is acceptable to me. And then what you say about people, I mean, people drink sweet, drink, I mean, they drink fruit juice and Coca-Cola. It's really interesting that um, something like Riesling with a little bit of sweetness and great acidity is um, uh, people are automatically, they think it's going to be like drinking like liquefied sugar, you know, that it's not going to be, even though it has a little bit of sweetness to it, it's got the, the freshness and acidity, like, squeezing a lemon on a dish that really perks it up too. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's a, it's a conundrum for sure. Uh, I had a couple come in last night, a young lady and a young man from my eyes. You know, I'm not exactly sure where they were from in this case, but she, I, I walked over to the table and she was proclaiming to her date, Oh my gosh, they have John Joseph Prune here, you know, JJ Prune. Oh my, and I'm like going crazy. I wonder if they have this vineyard. And I looked at her, I said, yeah, you know, you're, Oh, J.J. Prune, I didn't, and she's like, oh, I used to drink J.J. Prune all the time with my parents. He's my favorite producer in Germany. And it was just, it was fun. You know, some people understand when they understand, they get it. Um, you know, and I think that pairing with food is the key. People see how, you know, just fluid Germany, Austria, Alsace, Washington, the reason it can be with a dish. I think that opens a lot of eyes. Yeah, and uh, and as you mentioned, you know Washington, um, where I am living and where you spend a lot of time, uh, is is definitely a, a hot spot for Riesling and a lot of other wines too. But I think um, for me, living in Seattle, it's not till I leave Seattle and go across the country or you know overseas that you you kind of think like, well, what's what's the what do people think of Washington wine um, outside of you know like the the sort of bubble I'm living in. Um, what are uh, what do people think of Washington wine when you when you talk with customers? Do they do they I mean do they even know about Washington wine or know that where it's made or anything like that? Is it uh, is it a sort of an uphill battle for you if you want to promote Washington wines just because of all the time you spent there? Uh, some of the more savvy consumers and wine drinkers do know Washington wine, but it's definitely I'm, I'm shocked at how 
have a little market share it has, but just it's still working on things. Like it's it's tough to get people to go off of California. Even when you're pushing, you know, Washington wine some of the top wines. It's it's still challenging sometimes. People really have this I don't even know if they have a preconception. They just don't understand maybe or realize the level of quality that's coming out of Washington. And I think that, you know, we can do a better job. I can do a better job. It's, you know, the Cole Solari, for example, the 2008. A beautiful wine. It's on the glass list. It's on a pairing menu. You know, we do really well with it. People really enjoy it. You know, I think it's just kind of, we're still getting there. California is so massive and so close to me. Like, I sold more Washington wine in Vail, Colorado six years ago. Uh-huh. I think than I, than I do now in, in, in Vegas, and it's just these big brands really dominate. But there's a, what are some uh, producers that you think people should know about that are doing uh, really really cool things in Washington? I always love Javier's wines over at Pommelin Cellars. I think he's doing a great job with some of those Spanish varietals and just making really clean, um, balanced wines. Uh, I mentioned um, the last conversation I had with you about W.T. Vintners and and my good friend Jeff and Lindsay Thorson, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit with his cool climate, Krutner and, and Syrah, um, doing a phenomenal job there. I mean, there's there's, there's a number. They're, they're all over the board. I was say, so if you have, uh, I'm th- speaking of sommeliers making wine, have you, uh, have you done some work in the, you know, in the wine production side of things, or is that something that you kind of have on the, the back burner or something you'd like to do more of? You know, I did that harvest internship with, with Bob Betts at Betts Family Winery and worked with Catherine House a couple of years ago, and I had a great time, wonderful time doing that. Just walk through the vineyards, really see the production side of it. Um, since then, I haven't really gotten back into the into the cellar. Uh, it's definitely something in the future that is a possibility. Um, I love the idea of, of building brands, of marketing, and developing, you know, and, and making wine, and then figure out how to sell it, because that's the hard part, you know, and I, I think it's it's interesting, but I, I haven't had any plan to delve back into it recently. If I do, maybe I'll start here. <laughs> start a vineyard in uh, uh, Las Vegas? Well, I don't know what I would do here, something interesting, I imagine. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what, uh, so how did, um, how did that, did that help you, that experience working at Best, did that help you as a sommelier in some way? I think the most important thing was just how much work went into making a bottle of wine. Just realizing, I mean, all day, all night, just the amount of sheer, you know, blood, sweat, tears, manpower that goes into that. And it, it taught me to really evaluate wines a little differently, not to just dismiss them so quickly. You know, it's quick to say good, bad, flawed, da, 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 run through a wine and, 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 and toss it aside in two minutes. But just realizing kind of what goes into a, a high-quality wine. Um, and the whole system, has, it, it's, it has really helped me. It's allowed me to really think about, you know, the process holistically and also just, you know, speak to how wine is made, which is imperative with some guests, especially those who come from engineering backgrounds, science backgrounds, who are, who are curious about the production side of things. And I don't think I could have done that had I not spent that time um, with Bob and Kat. Yeah, it's really interesting to think that people, so people do kind of, they want to, they don't just say like, uh, I'm having steak, what wine should I have? It's like some guests actually are like, how is it made? And they're, you know, they want like, they want like, like specific detail, production details. Some guests do, and those are the scary ones. Because <laughs> they'll start going into the, you know, the food and chemical, and it's like, okay, okay, just, you know, just show the wine. But some do, some want to get pretty geeky, which I'm happy to do. 
to the extent of my abilities. Um, but a lot of people just want the wine and, and are happy with the little snippet. You know, here's an idea of where it's from and the grapes that are in it, et cetera, et cetera. If you really want to break it down, then I'm happy to, to do what I can there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> another thing, so I, I'm going to switch gears on menu talk, is that uh, I mentioned the um, uh, the shellfish platter and caviar, but um, the one thing that really, really, really stood out to me was that you can order a a whole uh, foie gras and get it uh, carved table side. Um, that is that is something that I have not seen before. Um, have you? How popular is that? Do you do people order it often? It's wild. I mean, so basically, it comes out in a large card. It's a whole load of foie gras. Weighs like two pounds. Enormous. You know, it's bring out somebody to spice it. It's unbelievable. And a lot of people order it, and especially with, with the ban in, in California. You know, you have a number of uh, very savvy diners out here in Las Vegas just jonesing for a, for a foie gras fix. You know, and at that two top, you know, we'll sit down and we'll have the whole lobe of foie gras. And, you know, we joke around afterwards, like, you know, well, let's bring the other three quarters of it. You can make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches tomorrow, you know. it's <laughs> But it's, it's truly, truly uh, a spectacle. And pure hedonism. <laughs> so this is something where I would think if I was at a table of like at least a dozen people, I would order. But you have like couples ordering like whole things or like, you know, tables of two or four. One of my favorite things is to kind of stand back when a two-top orders, um, you know, kind of just to watch their facial expressions. Probably have a glass of turn or something to give them. But, you know, sometimes it's just aghast when it comes open and it shoots and, oh, my goodness, you know, because it looks it's huge. It, it's tough to get through for two people. That's a, that is a lot of a lot of foie gras. That is. What is it uh, served with? Like, what kind of accoutrements come with it? It's pretty much just a focus on the foie gras. Yeah, yeah. Everything else, I'm sure it it, it casts a large <laughs> shadow over. Um, what? So you mentioned sweet wines like Sauterne. Why are sweet wines so um, Why are sweet wines so good with with foie gras? The richness, I think it's the richness and just the, the pure richness and sweetness of the foie, but then combined with a lot of these sweet ones just have searing acidity as well. So I think that kind of cool, bright, fresh acid combined with the richness that it really complements the foie, it's just kind of one of those age-old combinations that really works well. Um, the body stands up to the body, and you know, there's a little saltiness to the foie and sweetness with the Let's say stop turn, for example, and it's just a really wonderful match. Texturally, too, it was both very smooth. And so um, you're in Vegas right now. Today it's going to be, what, like 110 degrees? Is that about right? That sounds, sounds about right. I'm inside right now, but outside it's quite hot. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, do you, uh, what wines are you drinking like, uh, like at your home in that heat when you're not in like the uh, – the comfort of a uh, a cool casino. What what wines do you enjoy? My favorite wine right now is a Michelada. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard of that. Uh, is that in? Um, that's not in Washington, I don't think. No, no, no. I uh, anything light and and bright and sparkling. I mean, it's really hard for me to drink red wines right now, um, especially I mean, if I'm by the pool or outside. You know, I am drinking a lot of beer. I am drinking a lot of tequila. But if I am drinking wine it, it, outside, it's going to be you know, probably very, very dry, um, very, very cold, yeah. <laughs> very high acid. But once again, like back to back to the water, even like Muscadet or you know, uh, northern northern 
Spanish, you know, German and, and Austrian. And they're taking a lot of Austrian wines. A lot of the Gruners have been coming in. The new Gruners from the Tahiti stuff and a lot of uh, um, the Rieslings from, from Austria are just phenomenal to me. Yeah, uh, Austrian Riesling is good, and it's 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 dry, too. So that, that would be like if people were anti-Riesling for some reason, I think that's kind of a fun place for them to start exploring and get kind of back on the Riesling bandwagon. Or actually, um, Australia. Austria or Australia. Um, I love Australian Rieslings from uh, Clare Valley. I think they're some of the world's most underrated uh, white wines, too. Those are two fantastic things for people to check out. I, I agree completely with, with Australia and, and just Claire and Eden and leasing down there is it's, it's phenomenal. I don't see a lot of it here. Um, we tasted some stuff from uh, Grosette the other day that was that was great, kind of very old school. But leasing from Australia is phenomenal as well. Yeah, those wines are awesome. I had a bottle of uh, the Polish Hill, which I, I guess I would say is probably their most famous Riesling, a few years back, and it was uh, it was ten years old, and it drank like a uh, like a like a infant. It was really um, uh, vibrant and youthful, and just starting to show some secondary characteristics to it. Really fantastic. Very cool. Um, and then <clears throat> let's go from. Um, uh, Austria and Australian Riesling to talk about uh, some wine dinners. I always love going to uh, winemaker dinners. Um, I think it's really a great opportunity for people to obviously meet the winemaker or someone from the winery and really focus in on one subject. Um, you've got a dinner coming up with um, Flowers and Quintessa. I'm wondering if you could t- talk to me about, let's talk about the wines of, of Flowers first. I mean, those are, uh, it's kind of an interesting contrast. You've got like Flowers is more um, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and then Quintessa is like a, a Bordeaux blend, a Napa Bordeaux blend, correct? Definitely, very correct. And I think, I mean, the Huneus, Augustine Huneus, the kind of his holdings, his wineries as a whole, are very diverse. But you definitely have Quintessa there with like very classic, like very wonderfully made Bordeaux blend. Then you have the Flowers wines, which are, like you said, kind of cool climate. Chardonnay and Pinot Noir for the most part. And now you also have this illumination project from Quintessa, which is a Sauvignon Blanc, you know, Napa Valley Sauvignon Blanc. So you have these really kind of cool different um, focuses with each with each winery, which is really valuable for us and also anybody in terms of putting together a winemaking dinner, you know, just very diverse. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice when you go to a, sometimes you go to a, a, a winemaker dinner and all they have is like, I mean, it's just because that's what they make. Like, um, it's just, you know, Napa Cabernet after Napa Cabernet or, or anything like that, or Syrah after Syrah. So it's nice where you can have uh, a winemaker's dinner with wines that uh, kind of flow with like, you know, uh, some nice whites, some lighter style reds, and then some heavier reds. I'm sure it's much uh, easier on, on you and, and the, the staff with coming up with a menu as well. I, I think it's great. I mean, Chef Ben and Will and Michael and everybody have done a great job with the menu. And I think being able to give that, you know, here's a here's a high acid bright Sauvignon Blanc. We'll move into a you know a Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, get a couple of Bordeaux blends. I mean, it, it allows you to really um, create a more balanced menu. Um, unlike like you mentioned, when there's a winery that might have you know five or six big red wines, it can be a little challenging. Right, you don't you don't want the the scallop crudo to come out with the uh, <laughs> with one of those big bruising reds or something. So you actually, um, you know, Quintessa's a Napa winery. You're going to be in Napa um, pretty shortly. Uh, what do you uh, when you visit a, a wine region like Napa? I mean, professionally, um, what are you, what are you hoping to get out of a trip like that? Like, where are some of the wineries you're going to, and what do you hope to discover? Well, 
Well, normally I'll have a short list of wineries that I need to pour in the wine or friends or just kind of have a plan of action when I go. And it, it definitely depends on, on kind of the time I'm going. But in this instance, I'm actually taking two of um, our servers. We had a staff education, kind of a, a uh, I guess it was a series of quizzes and, and lectures and classes. And, and these two won. Um, and the prize was we're actually working with Quintessa. And there was a Quintessa and flowers and, and go spend a little time in, in, in Napa there. So that's this trip as a whole. But besides that, I'll oftentimes try to go visit wineries I, I don't get a chance to try very often. Ones with much smaller distribution channels, um, maybe ones with new winemakers. Um, things that I don't get a chance to try via their national sales reps, or marketing agents, etc. Mm-hmm. So I get to see a lot of other big wines here, but I don't get to see a lot of the smaller producers, so I normally try to focus on them. And how valuable is it when you're working at the, you know, um, you're at the ta- someone's table to talk about, um, you know, not just like this Cabernet is, you know, made in this way and that and whatnot, but to say like, you know, I was at the winery and sort of give them a little kind of nugget or trans- some sort of transportive element to make them feel like, you know, they're getting some like cool insider knowledge of you being there. How how important is that? Um, I think it's it's beyond it. It's invaluable, and I think you having traveled a number of regions and and myself as well, like the ability to speak to a place that you've been to, as as a wine professional. I mean, nothing nothing beats that. I can read books until I'm blue in the face. I can study flashcards. I can draw maps, you know. But until you actually go visit a region or a winery and really get to see what it's like, you come back and it's. I mean, your 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 arsenal is is it's ridiculous. So that's why I originally got into wine was because I wanted to travel. I really wanted to see the world. And wine has been a wonderful vehicle, but it has allowed me to come back and say, okay, in Rioja, for example, let me talk to you about the different regions. And it it, it creates, you know, living, breathing knowledge, and it, it's invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you completely about traveling and experiencing places and then as a writer or a podcaster or uh, working in retail wine business, having those, those stories of being there is um, much more uh, evocative than just uh, kind of, you know, reading a, a text sheet or a PDF. Um, so I think that's, that's, I mean, part of it is, you know, the, the sort of the romance and the travel and the history and experiencing different things that for me makes wine really fascinating. And I know that's something that you try and translate uh, when you're table side, too. So, um, Cole, thanks for being on the show today. Uh, everyone, you can go to michaelmina.net to find out more about Michael Mina at Bellagio. And uh, if you're there, go say hi to Cole and uh, order, a, order a couple of Order, order up the foie gras and uh, have them pair some sweet wines for you. Um, Cole, thanks for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Jameson. I really appreciate it. Have fun in Seattle, okay? All right.